You're listening to The Weekly, a co-production of WOBC and the Oberlin Review. I'm your host, Johan Kavert, and I'm joined by my co-host and managing editor of the Oberlin Review, Daniel Marcus. Happy to be here. We're extremely honored to be talking today with Ferd Protzman. After graduating from Oberlin in 1975 with a degree in German and government, Ferd earned a master's in journalism at the University of Michigan. He is an award-winning journalist who has worked for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the International Herald Tribune, and National Geographic. He currently serves as the chief of staff for Oberlin's president, Carmen Ambar, and as a lecturer in the Department of Rhetoric and Composition. We're so pleased to have you with us on the weekly. Thanks for having me. Um, just to, to get started, um, your official title is Chief of Staff. What does that entail, um, sort of professionally? That's a really good question, and no one seems to know. I was at a function last night for um, this group of schools that we shared data with, Kofi, and there was one other Chief of Staff there, and I didn't get a chance to even connect with her. In the higher education realm, chief of staff ranges pretty widely from a person who functions essentially as an office manager, sort of runs the office accounts and takes care of the scheduling for the president and things like that, and a gatekeeper, and then more towards where I am on the things, which is uh, tracking initiatives, keeping them going, driving accountability, helping her with whatever projects she wants me to, to do, serving as a liaison to faculty, to the board, things like that. So it's interesting that in, a, in, in high, the higher ed sector where they have conferences of all kinds, so if you're an anthropologist, you, know, you, you go to your anthropologist conference and that's where you find jobs and hear what's new in the field and all that sort of stuff. Only now, in the last like six months, have any of these organizations come up with a let's have a conference for chief of staffs because mm. it seems to be an evolving role. So, yeah, it's really interesting. It's just a lot of uh, a lot of strategic thinking at Oberlin in this day and age. A lot of um, helping her sort through the financial things. Uh, and a lot of just working with people, you know, coordinating with the staff, coordinating with the faculty, meeting with students, meeting with working with student senate, which is actually a really exciting thing. I just got the email about working groups that mm. uh, the senior staff can be part of, and that's just revelatory for us to be to be in a process like that. So yeah, it's a it's a very broad and weird job. When things go right, you don't get any credit. When things go wrong, it's the chief of staff who screwed it up. Yeah. So. Yeah. Totally. You correct me if you're if I'm wrong, but you were also senior staff for President Krizlov. I was not on the oh, senior okay. staff. I was his um, assistant to the president for communications. Got it. Okay. And that was a much more of a writing role, mm. but that was also a lot of um, projects, troubleshooting, organizing symposia, things like that. But I wrote a whole lot, and you know, I wrote his speeches, I wrote op-eds for him, we collaborated and all that. But uh, President Ambar is just an incredibly naturally gifted speaker. So you know, my speech writing role is just basically sitting down and you know, going through a few bullet points with her. She's really good. Wow. You, we, we talked sort of in the introduction about 
all the all of the many publications that you've worked for in the past as a journalist. How did you end up returning to Oberlin to work in administration, you know, having had all that journalistic experience? We came back here, my wife and I, in, and our then nine-year-old son in 2006, and my work had become portable. It was me, mostly I was doing freelance work and writing books. And my wife is also uh, internet-based. She um, does research for the financial services industry, so we could work wherever we wanted to work. Um, we've been coming to Oberlin, so I did not have a job. I had a book that was just coming out, and I was about to go on a national book tour for Natural Geographic, wow. which these national book tours are actually pretty lucrative deals. You get paid a really generous per diem. So the longer you're out on the road, the more money you make just from the tour, in addition to what you get from the book. So, you know, we were in decent financial shape. We came back here because my parents, I'm, I'm a multi-generation, from a multi-generation Oberlin family. It's five or six, depending how you count one oh, cousin. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so over a century of uh, people who had no fantasy about where to go to college and just went to the one that was <laughs> close by. Um, my dad was from Norwalk, Ohio. He's class of 41. He and my mom had retired to Kendall at Oberlin. He was a physicist. She was sort of a social justice activist. And we had our son. We would come here frequently to see them. And my close, dear friend and college roommate, Michael Mandarin, is the director of admissions for the conservatory. So we'd stay with Mike and his wife, Betsy, who used to run the Firelands Association for the Visual Arts. So we had this strong connection. My mentor... Two of my mentors were still here, and I would see them in the German department and Harlan Wilson from the politics department. And, uh, yeah, so we were living in the Washington suburbs, and we just got kind of tired of the rat race, and it was really crowded, and we wanted a different life for our son. My wife and I had both sort of grown up in places where kids could just, like, go outdoors, get on their bike, and ride off with a herd of kids. Mm -hmm. And the Washington suburbs is very regulated. You make play dates, and, you know, you're there from 2 to 4, and then comes Johan from 4 to 6. Right. <laughs> and God forbid, you know, your parents aren't there right on time to, to pick you up. And... Yeah, so we just wanted to come here. We didn't. I had no inkling that I would work for the college. I became an affiliate scholar just so I could do research in the library because we have such incredible facilities. Uh, I write a lot about art, hmm. so having the museum, having the access to the art library, which is a phenomenal resource, was just huge. So we were here, and uh, the thing about being a freelancer is you always, you know, you always looking for the next gig. And you have to keep stuff in the pipeline. And uh, I was looking ahead, and Marvin Krizloff became president. And my wife actually saw that he was advertising for an assistant for communications and said, why don't you apply for that? And I said, oh, you know, he'll, he'll bring some 30-year-old guy from Michigan. She said, oh, well, what do you have to lose by applying for it? And I said, oh, that'd be nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so... I applied, you know, interviewed with a couple of people, and then there, there it was. Right. He hired me. So, so you just sort of almost like fell out of journalism in a way. Yeah. No, I had no. I wasn't like making a plan to to just jump to higher ed. And it's interesting because in the huge draconian downsizing of so many newsrooms, 
um, you know, a lot of people have gone from being a journalist to working in higher education or working as a speechwriter or whatever they can do to cobble together a living. So I started getting phone calls and emails from former colleagues who were saying, oh, it must be great, you know, you just mm -hmm. sit around in the ivory tower with your pipe and your tweed jacket <laughs> and feet up on the desk and once in a while, you know, do something. And I was thinking, no, you know, this is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it, it was, it was pretty interesting. So now, you know, then they're like, well, how do you do this? How do you, and it was luck. You know, it was just luck and having this connection to Oberlin. Do you ever like miss being a freelancer? Well, I kept doing books uh. up until I started with Marvin in 20, 2007. And I did one, two, three, three or four, I can't remember exactly, books on the side and even did a little book touring. Hmm. But it just became, yeah, it's just, it was just brutal. You, you end up just working all the time. Um, you know, he was pretty good about it as long as it didn't interfere with, you know, sort of my daily work. But, you know, as, as I got older, just going home and, you know, seeing my wife and my son and then just going up to my office and working for another whatever, how many hours. It was too much like being an Oberlin student. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell, tell me about it. Yeah, you know. Huh. Yeah. Well, I, I was curious, um, with, with maybe the exception of Ben Jones... Who's a who's a fellow Oberlin alumnus? You're one of the few sort of people with that sort of student connection to Oberlin as well. Is that true? I think there are more people who are Oberlin alums than you know. Okay. Like there's a lot of professors. Yeah. A fair number of professors who are. There's some people in development who are. There's some other people in Ben Jones's shop who are. Um, there used to be a guy who worked on the grounds crew, okay. was an open Oberlin grad, and he was kind of the ur hippie. Um, <laughs> you know, got finished his BA and then you know started just doing the, doing grounds work and, and liked it, and you know, good for him. Huh. So it's it's there's a fair number here. I don't know I don't know if that's necessarily good for Oberlin or not. Yeah. Well. Well. Sort of. I think it's interesting that there's, you know, a couple of, of sort of Oberlin alums on the senior staff and sort of helping to, you know, shape the president. And definitely with a new president coming in, you know, President Ambers had to learn a lot about sort of the past and just sort of traditions and things like that. Mm -hmm. How do you see your role being shaped by, you know, your extended history with the, the college? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that... It it is changed over the course of time, so you know we're in, as you both know, some pretty tough financial circumstances. And coming from an extended Oberlin family, I feel like I've been watching this movie for most of my life. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of flush times, and then Oberlin kind of. Our, our aspirations always seem to outstrip our resources. And that's a good thing in one way. It's good to have aspirations, but it's a, it's a small place. And while it's pretty rich, it's not that rich. And so every there's this cycle. And it's not just Oberlin, it's all of higher education, but at Oberlin, I've just been closer to it and it's more pronounced. 
the college gets into financial straits and what happens is they say the levers that were always moved before were, okay, bump up tuition, uh, fire anyone who's not, not in a union that you can fire. It's usually not faculty. And, and uh, you know, and then that you kind of muddle through that way and cut some costs on other stuff, you know. Um, I did a, every year I used to write a quiz for the 25th reunion class. And so last year I was researching the class of what would it have been, I forget, 88, somewhere in there. And uh, not 88, it would have been, we're getting into the 90s now. Any rate, so I go to the archives and I, I, I love reading the old Oberlin Review because that was where I got my first byline was on the Oberlin Review and I just always liked it. And there we are 25 years ago and the general faculty policy and planning and budget committees are reporting to the general faculty. Um, it was, the structure was different then a little bit. It was, it was more driven by faculty, but the senior staff was also weighing in. And they're like, oh, oh gosh, we have this financial crunch. What do we do? Well, we increase tuition by 5%. We let in 50 more students who maybe don't have, you know, quite the test scores and grades we're looking for, but have the ability to pay. And then we, the, the faculty, I think it was, I think it was all staff. They basically said, and then we cut the staff by 17 people. And, uh, Next, next issue of the review, you look at it, and it's like, staff revolts, <laughs> and uh, students are, are pissed, and it all gets sort of walked back and mumbled, jumbled together. And the one thing that still stands untouched is the 5% tuition increase. And you were not, look where we are, look what it costs. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. everyone I know who went to Oberlin, you look at the cost, and we all, we, and I wouldn't say we all love it. That's a generalization. But most, most like eight of my friends and I pooled our money after a mini reunion a few years ago to create a scholarship mm -hmm. and to keep funding this so that we can help provide access. Because, you know, when they met our current students, they were like, yeah, this is what we love about the place. Yeah. But, you know, how do you make it financially sustainable? How do you make it so that the broad cross-section of society can come, not just full-pay students who are subsidizing people with no resources. What about, you know, the people in the middle? And they're the ones, it's, it's you know, I've had discussions with alumni and they're saying, why would Oberlin ever give financial aid to a family that earns $165,000 a year? And the answer is because they can't pay this. Yeah. And if you keep ratcheting up the price and no one no one has figured out how do you not even how do you break the cost curve how do you bend the cost curve mm -hmm. do, do you feel like i mean i know you said you you feel like you've been watching this movie all your life to some extent um i mean when that when that headline came out in the review in the early 90s neither of us were born yeah, at all, right. you know so i'm curious if you think that you know, you've seen this movie a couple of times. Does this time feel different because of sort of the education landscape with tuition being as high as it is? Yeah, absolutely. I, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, 
the landscape of higher education around us is so different. Everyone is struggling with this. The colleges aren't going to survive. For the amount of money that we charge for people to come study here, people are asking questions that just weren't asked you know, about return on investment, about a job right after college. You know, my job right after college was washing dishes in a pancake house managed by a guy I grew up with. And my goal was, you know, to write poetry. And so I'm basically <laughs> living in my parents' house, yeah. washing a lot of dishes and writing a lot of really bad poetry. <laughs> and then I started thinking, you know, maybe that whole grad school thing could be interesting. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's just different. It's much more existential. Society has changed. The, the whole value proposition has changed. And the liberal arts, you know, I believe in it so deeply. And you see the relevance of it in so many lives, but it's under assault. Mm -hmm. And it's under assault by people going, you know, it's just mumbo jumbo. Right. You, you need to go into a STEM field or you need to go to a school where you know when you come out, the school trains you for a specific job. And to me... In, in the economy we have today, that seems incredibly short-sighted. Right. Because that job, you guys, I've changed jobs multiple times. I've changed careers, if you will, not that often. Once I sort of got on the, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I knew I wanted to live in Europe. I knew I wanted to get paid for writing and living in Europe. And somehow that all worked out. But your generation, you're get, you're, with the technology, with the way the economy is, you'll likely have multiple careers yeah. and some pretty big shifts from what you're doing today at Oberlin. I mean, it'll always inform you and enrich you and be part of your work and part of who you are. But it's not necessarily going to be what you're doing to make a living. Right. Sort of seems like, I mean, I personally agree with you. And that's one of the things that I love about this place is that, you know, interdisciplinary thing and the fact that, you know, I host a podcast and work for a newspaper and I'm a biochemistry major. I think that that's really, in, like, that's a, yeah. a really cool thing. But it seems hard outside of a, a, an insular kind of situation like this to translate that value proposition to people in a way that is really effective. Because if we could do it, we would have already been doing it, right? Like if, if the message of, you know, that job that you were specifically trained for might not exactly be there, if we were conveying that message accurately, you would think that maybe liberal arts institutions would be in better shape than they are? Yeah, I mean, some are, some aren't. I, I, Oberlin, I don't, I don't think that Oberlin is going to die or go away or anything that draconian like is going to happen to right. many schools. I think part of it is liberal arts institutions have been pretty self-satisfied in a way. We do what we do. We know it's really special. If you're here, you're special too. We don't really have to explain it to anybody. And so they just didn't, it wasn't that they weren't, they weren't messaging effectively, but it was more out of sort of uh, negligence isn't the right word, just self-satisfaction. Mm -hmm. You know, we know we're great. Yeah. And now you really have to get people who go through your institution and have gone on to life, in life and are doing good things to tell their stories. And you also have to get students to tell their stories about you know, what it is you do while you're here. And, and you also have to get students to recognize 
that some of the things they do here, that they, at Oberlin in particular, we don't like to label things like saying you're being, you know, even being entrepreneurial when I first started here was considered kind of like, ooh, is that, that's kind of like capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you know, it, it, uh, and when I was a student, you know, I had one roommate who his whole thing was just, I want to go make a bunch of money. And people just constantly were saying, oh, man, you're an effing capitalist. And say, yeah, well, that's where the money is. So that's where I'm going. But, you know, he's also still a French horn player in these suburban symphonies in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And has played horn with the Chinese National um, Symphony in Beijing. So, you know, he's had this really deep, rich life that you only get from someplace like this. Uh, and he doesn't, he doesn't articulate that particularly well. So part of it, I think, is just really explaining to people what goes on, what happens, that it's not, you know, it's not just, you know, you, you know all the stereotypes about Oberlin, you know, it's just, it's a left-wing indoctrination faculty and you, or, or facility, and you just, students come here and, you know, get turned into Marxists and then go off and, uh, you know, live, sleep on couches in Brooklyn for the next 10 years and then eventually decide they need to get a job as a librarian. You know, it's the, the range is so great. What people do is so great. And it's just how do we, how do we share that with people? What we've been talking sort of a lot about changing norms, especially within like higher education and perceptions of that. Um, since you were a student here in the 70s, how have you seen sort of like the student body itself and the administration change and sort of like adapt to, to sort of like wider cultural perceptions? Yeah. Huh. That's a really interesting question. So as a student, uh, I shouldn't, I probably shouldn't even talk about my experience. No, you, you can give um, us stories. We're happy to. Yeah. So. The, the the institution engages students so much better than it did in my era. Mm. We didn't have a central mail room. You got your mail delivered to your dormitory, your residence. Um, and men also got maid service once a week. Well, so, <laughs> yeah, they abandoned that halfway through my freshman year. Thank goodness. When the women were just like, you know, I'm sorry. This is so blatantly unfair, and uh, they, they abandoned that. But to give you a sense of how I was as a student, you, they communicated via letter. So I never met my advisor, not once. I don't know what the man's face looked like. Every letter that wasn't from my parents or friends, I threw out. <laughs> I never even looked at them. Or I'd read them and go, ah... Uh, I don't want to go see him. <laughs> and you look at that, it's just like mind-bogglingly stupid. But it was a different era. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was 18. The Vietnam War was going on. I'm from a Quaker family. I'd been involved in the peace movement and the civil rights movement. And I thought, as many 18-year-olds do, I'm not saying you guys ever did, but... I knew pretty much everything about everything, and I didn't need any advice from some old guy in the religion department. So there were there was a total collapse of rules, essentially. There was 
you you just it was I think some older faculty refer to this as the dark ages because <laughs> it just was the the order broke down you could do whatever you want to give you some examples of huge differences um, you couldn't eat or drink in class but you could smoke tobacco <sighs> and a lot of people did professors and students wow. so you're in I had a freshman philosophy seminar that met from seven to ten one night a week and half of the people were chain smokers and the professor was a pipe smoker. And you're in one of those little seminar rooms on the third floor of King, wow. which don't ventilate really well. <laughs> and after, you know, 90 minutes, you go out in the hallway for a break. And those of us who weren't smokers are just like going like, ah, ah, air, air. And uh, then you go back in and spend, you know, the next 90 minutes talking about, can you know a goat without being a goat? <laughs> <laughs> Very overrun. So, you know, we viewed, we didn't, you know, I never met the president. Mm -hmm. I never really knew any administrators. I developed relationships with faculty that took a while. Uh, it was a much more competitive era in mm -hmm. terms of students competing for grades. Wow. It, you know, some Professor X is known for only giving three A's. And there were people who were going to do anything to get one of those three A's. Wow. So they would steal reserve materials and hide them. Uh, you know, you'd be in a discussion group and you'd think, you know, you've had things all worked out for your presentation. You go into class and suddenly you hear the person who's in your discussion group basically torpedoing what it is you're about to say. <laughs> <laughs> and you kind of go, okay. So... Yeah, it was it was a very anxious time, and hanging over it all was the war, and the thought that almost everybody knew somebody who was either serving in the military or who had been killed, and yeah, you just it, it colored the experience in a way that is just different. It's mm -hmm. like you know now if things go bad, you know you you go. You may have to withdraw or go on medical leave or, you know, you take a year and go do something else. Back then, that could have, could mean you get drafted. Mm. So there was a lot of tension. And I had a student say, yeah, but you guys had really great music. And even then, I, you know, the, or the 70s was when disco was starting to come in. So yeah. even there you had this divide between people who were like, you know, disco is just the next great thing. And other people who were just like, no, you know, I only listen to the dead and that's it. Nothing else. Yeah. So, yeah. and now, now it's strange because it, in some ways for, for people my age, it seems like it's so accommodating. You can go get food and take it out. You know, we had to like sneak it out in your book bag. You know, you'd make a sandwich, wrap it up and then. Off you go now. When I see the kids with that, um, you know, it's it's more student centric. The the one thing that is still relatively unchanged is the residence halls, <laughs> which yeah, we have to do something about because right. they're just. You know, I was in my job. I was in Langston, which we all called North. I don't know if you guys call it North. Do you live in Langston? Yep. Uh, I lived there last year. Uh, 
Wasn't yeah, so, so you know, you're like, kind of good. This isn't too bad. And then we go into the bathroom on the wing. I lived in Shaw, mm-hmm. and it's like this is the same exact bathroom right down to the fixtures. Yeah, and that was forty some years ago. Yeah. That's not good. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's a lot, a lot that needs to be done. So to me, it's like a more accommodating place. I think the student culture, well, it can still be really fractious. Um, it's like people are competing. And correct me if, I'm, if you disagree with this. Yeah. My impression is that you guys compete to do sort of the best you can to get the best out of yourself. It's not like you're out to screw the other people in the class or I don't know. It just doesn't yeah. seem competitive in the same kind of way. Yeah. There's, the game is not zero sum anymore. Okay. You know, it's like, yeah, I think that that's a good, we're all very competitive with ourselves or a lot of us are. But I, nobody's out to sabotage anyone. Nobody's like stealing people's reserve materials, okay. <laughs> anything like that. That's really interesting because I, I I hadn't heard that before, and I think there's been like a lot of discussion about campus culture and sort of like the idea that things can be like a little bit toxic. Yeah. And I think that's maybe a little bit more just sort of like within the political sphere. Um, but sort of like the idea that at least it used to be more sort of like outright um, like divisive you know it's, it's really interesting oh there were brawls in wilder i mean wow wow yeah wow that's nuts yeah huh. it was kind of it was sort of shocking i mean but yeah do you think that because one thing that that sort of occurs to me not to sound like an old fart here but um <laughs> but <laughs> that's my role <laughs> yeah um i mean I, you know i remember during freshman year um which was my, my freshman year was was 2014 2015 when none of the sort of current politics that we're in had started to really materialize yet. We were sort of still riding high in the Obama days. Ah, okay. You know, the, the, the Congress was obstinate, but, the, you know, there was no, like, you know, we weren't having the Russia investigation. You know, Donald Trump hadn't announced his candidacy yet. Yeah. So we were all sort of still, like, and there was, it feels, in retrospect, like, once that happened, and especially after the election results came in, that there was a sort of palpable change amongst people to some degree, both here and sort of nationally, in, in, in a way that sounds sort of similar to like the, the Vietnam War sort of hanging over and putting this cloud over everyone. Yeah. It feels at times like there is a cloud over everyone of the national political moment that we are in with the, the, the Trump presidency. D- d- does that feel similar to you Yeah, at all? that's an interesting point. And that, that had, I, I agree. I think that was a pretty, pretty big... I taught the journalism basics class mm-hmm. I used to teach the day after the election. Mm. So it was on a Wednesday mm-hmm. in the yeah. afternoon. And uh, I was sitting in my office before I went over there just thinking, okay, it, it's a writing class and what are we going to do? And how do I deal with this? Because the class was just completely, you know, they, they were thoroughly expecting that the first female president was about to be elected and the majority of the class were women and they were just completely psyched. There was one person who was too young to vote, but even she was, you know, for Hillary all the way. And uh, so I threw out the lesson plan and went in and it was just brutal. Yeah. You know, multiple people cried. Um, you know, they were just getting people to, I said, we, I think we need to talk about this if you guys want to talk about it. Yeah. And 
just that sat there for a, I don't know how long and someone said yeah okay whatever yeah and uh yeah and it was tough and it was a it was a turning point I think mm-hmm. I think you're right and that it's particularly here um I mean, I my what I said to the class was try. Let's try to think about this. You are editors of a newspaper, mm-hmm. so you're at the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Cleveland Plain Dealer. What are you telling your reporters to go out and do? What kind of stories do you need? And so, what I was looking for was things like you know, go out and interview people on the street about why why this is going on, and uh, you know, find experts to do analysis. And uh, one student who had had like the 10,000 yard stare the whole class period, I just turned to him and said, so, so and so, what do you think? What would be the story you would, what are the questions you want your reporters to answer? Mm -hmm. And he finally zeroed back in on the class and he said, I guess why our country is irredeemably racist. Mm -hmm. And I just said, yeah, that's that's a big question. This let's kind of shrink it down to the election, but it was yeah, and we're still grappling with these yeah. questions because it's just been since that day. It's just been sort of Looney Tunes. Given that and sort of your role teaching journalism and helping you know advise student journalists on campus, what do you see as the role of various publications within Oberlin? So like the Grape and and the Review, and also maybe sort of. Like the source things, things um, like from the administration, like the source and the alumni magazine. What's the role that those play, and how do they sort of shape campus conversations? Should they be shaping conversations? Well, things stu- like that? I think the student publications, you know, their job is is to cover the campus, to cover what's going on, and the traditional breakdown has been that the review is the paper of record. So it, it covers the news, it does the things that, you know, any good metropolitan newspaper would do. It covers, you know, arts, sports, culture, uh, it has sort of events, it, it covers things in the town if they rise to a, a certain level. The grape has evolved. When I first got here, it was still, I mean, it's, it's evolved into more of a newsy outfit and i think that's been a good thing it tried really hard in the to be you know satirical and ironic and snarky and all these things and what in my first couple years i didn't know i didn't have any connection with any of the students there they were all had been there before i got here but it just struck me as just sort of badly written stories laced with profanity. <laughs> and that, that, that's not actually irony or satire. It's just, it's just you know, what it is. Yeah. And so now it's, it's yeah, there've been, there's been some really good writing. Um, people have, it used to be if you'd worked for the grape, it was pretty hard to take your clips in and try to get a job. And that's not the case anymore. I know um, Waylon Cunningham, who was the great editor a couple years ago, you know, he's working down in Texas as a, as a journalist. Mm. And, you know, I mean, he found out what all student journalists find out when you go out um, 
it's it's great that you were editor of the review or you know a reporter for the review, but when you get out in the real world, you know, you got to elevate your game and, mm-hmm. and you have to adapt. And that's that's the great that's what I loved about journalism, and that's why I think so many uh, Oberlin graduates are journalists. Our A list of journalists for a place that doesn't have any journalism program is you know. I keep sort of a loose list. It's a 150, 160 names. Yeah. And they're just all at sort of the top level of journalism nationally and internationally and doing really cool stuff. And I think it's a tribute to the education we get here. You know, we, yeah. we, I was asked about this somewhere else. Why, why is it that we do well? And it's because in my experience as a foreign correspondent, there were 12 Oberlin grads who were foreign correspondents in Europe when I was in Europe. Wow. So... It's like something's going on here. And it was a combination of language skills, but also the ability to see stories, to see connections. It's the, back to what you were saying earlier about the interdisciplinarity, um, seeing connections between things that other journalists just don't see. And I literally had discussions with people where they'd say, oh, yeah, that's the thing you're talking about isn't a story. I don't get it. And I would end up writing the story and then they go, oh, oh, now I see. So, yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's clear, and, and, and we knew this coming in, but, you know, you worked as a career journalist for a long time. You clearly value journalism. Um, and it's clear, you know, both in the role that you've played in terms of, like, serving as an informal advisor to the Oberlin Review at times and, and, and engaging with, with student journalists and journalists out in the world who came from here that... Journalism is something that's very important to you. I right. think that's fair to say. Um, one thing that it has seemed like, especially maybe not especially, but this year uh, being at the review for me has been a little bit of a of a butting of heads between the administration and student media outlets over budget issues and staffing and tuition and, and what such. Do you ever feel like you're caught between two worlds where, you know, you're in this administrative role and you're also someone who cares a lot about journalism and those two things are not always, you know, playing on the yeah, same team? I, mean, I can't, in my job, I can't just talk, say everything I know. Yeah. I work under confidentiality like we were talking about. Um, But I don't really feel caught Mm -hmm. because I think the student journalists are doing what journalists are supposed to do. Hmm. Right. And this is the way it is out in the world as well. You know, you don't just become a White House reporter and walk in and say, so, Sarah, a few things I want to get straight with you. (laughs) It doesn't it doesn't work like that. That's that's the inherent tension. And what is really cool is seeing. Well, let me give you an example. So student journalism is like. All journalism, but mm-hmm. it, it you know has constraints. You don't have you know the resources behind you. You don't have teams of lawyers. You don't have the layers of professional editors saying you know you understand this is libelous, right? And we're not going to print it. And you know so it's kind of it's you're learning by doing, and that's good because that's what journalism is. You're always going to be learning mm-hmm. by doing because there's you know there's times when you're just out in the middle of nowhere, your cell phone has died, and you have to take notes and just make it work. But the cultural appropriation of food story that got such national attention, so that started in my journalism basics class. Really? Yeah. Oh, and wow. It, it was written by a student. Um, she's still, she's about to graduate. And she came in and said, 
I, you say, observe what's going on at Oberlin and try to identify stories. So I'm an international student and I see, see these other international students who are upset about the food in the dining halls. Mm -hmm. And I said, come on, you know, it's, in a, it's institutional food. It, it's, by definition, it's going to suck. I mean, we can try to make it more sucky or less, but <laughs> it's still, you're eating in a cafeteria. Yeah. It's a school cafeteria. And she's like, no, 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 you're not understanding what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. They're making international foods incorrectly. And I said, again, what? And she said, no, hear me out. So Indian food with beef. And right there, my antenna just, you know, was like, oh, uh, you're kidding, right? She's like, yeah, and that's not the worst of it. And uh, so then she went through other things. The, the one I really went off on was chicken sushi, because I didn't even let her finish. I'm like, whatever you do, don't eat that. Do not <laughs> eat the chicken sushi. You cannot eat raw chicken, you know, salmonella. It's just, she's like, she was like, stop, 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 stop. She said, no, it's worse. It's like this pathetic little nurdle of rice with a strip of chicken loaf, processed chicken loaf mm. laid across it. And I was like, oh, God, that, that is worse. Sometimes, <laughs> right? so, so I looked at the story, and uh, my TA looked at the story, and we said, you have to go talk to campus dining mm -hmm. because you can't just blast them with this. She had interviewed, interviewed international students and done a good job. She went to campus dining. They had no clue about this. Yeah. So they were like, oh, my God, we didn't know. Can you form, can the students come in and talk to us? Because we didn't even know. We were just trying to have fun with food. And uh, so fine. They do. The students advise them. They get it together. It's problem resolved. She writes a follow-up story saying, you know, international students are now happy. They're working with campus dining. Things are better. That's what journalism is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. It identifies something that's going on in a community. It brings it to light. Uh, it, it lets both sides say what's going on or all sides, if possible, say what's going on and then tries to get it moving towards some resolution. So it was after this whole process that the right wing blogs get a hold of it. And I still I mean, just last week, I got an email from some alum, you know, these little snowflakes the you know, blah, blah, blah. Don't they know it's not about gourmet food? When I was at Oberlin, you know, we had to grub for roots and berries and eat rats. <laughs> so, yeah, of course you didn't. But <laughs> so that and to me, that's what student journalism, campus journalism, that's what the review and the grape and to a certain extent, Wilder Voice mm -hmm. and In Solidarity. That's what they can do. Though In Solidarity, I think now has gone more in a literary direction. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's when it works. So, you know, no, the administration can't just say, come on in, we'll show you anything you want. We'll, but we work really hard to be as transparent as we can be. And it certainly is much, much more so than it was, you know, in years past. Mm. I think one of the things I've, I've been curious about is thinking sort of, Daniel was talking about sort of antagonisms between sort of students and administration sometimes and just sort of students being upset that you know all of their demands can't be met or, or you know that make that makes sense um to me and also you were talking about sort of in the 60s during the vietnam war era that there was like a little bit of a disconnect or maybe more than a little bit of a disconnect between students and administrators do you think that that um sort of difficult relationship is inherent 
or are there ways that we can like oh. go about improving that or break it down or is that is that beneficial for the institution to have some friction i think it's inevitable yeah. to a certain degree because you know the administration has certain responsibilities and the stu students have certain desires and needs so if you talk to oberlin grads from the 1960s so this was, they view this, of course, as the absolute pinnacle of Oberlin activism and, and scholarship and everything else. And for all I know, they're right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to argue about it. But so in 1960, a new president came in, Robert Carr, and a lot of things were happening. Uh, they built the first sort of big residence halls like Dascom, I think, mm -hmm. opened in 59. And these replaced small, smaller houses with individual cooks. So 15 to 20 students living in so this ramshackle old sort of Hogwartsian place, which was a fire trap and, you know, whatever. Um, but look at the way Oberlin was set up then. The administration was explicitly in loco parentis. So they were your mommy and daddy while you were here. And the students... As that went on, you know, as people are getting sent, 18-year-olds are dying in Vietnam, are like, no, you know, you're not my parents. I want to be treated like an adult. And the administration pushed back on that at the beginning and just said, well, if that's what you want, maybe you should go somewhere else. Mm. And they were, they were literally, when you arrive for orientation, you got a speech, not from the president, but from the dean, saying, look to your left, look to your right, it's the old cliche, one of the three of you won't be here in four years. And they were proud of that. You know, this is a really hard school. You're going to have to work your butt off just to get through here. And there isn't time for a whole lot of, you know, frivolity, and we don't want to hear, you know, here are the rules. So men at the beginning of the 60s at dinner had to wear jackets and ties. Mm -hmm. Women had to wear dresses or skirts. Women were locked in their dorms. I forget, it was some ridiculous, like 10 o'clock at night with maybe 11 on the weekends. And apparently there was an entire system of, of sneaking around this through basement windows and what have you. Um, men and women couldn't be in, a man and a woman couldn't be in a room together unless the door was open and then the students pushed and pushed and pushed and so they said, okay, it has to be open the width of a trash can. And everyone had these standard issue metal trash cans. But being Oberlin students, they got sledgehammers and pounded those flat so they could just wedge the door. And then they would loop, I'm told, a cord around you know, the door handle so you couldn't just pull it open and say, what are you up to? And then there was a rule about there had to be, if both of you were on the bed, there had to be like two feet on the floor at all times or whatever. Wow. So you go from that to the end of the 60s, so I started in 71, where now the rules have come completely dissolved. So there's always this, this tension because you, know, you have faculty and staff trying to sort of keep control in, in a sense for the same reasons that you know, we have you know, police and public safety. You have a big group of people. You, you want everyone to be safe. You want everyone to be fed, all this sort of stuff. Um, and meanwhile, you have all these people, and it's the only time in your life when you're living in a community where sort of the majority of people are within three years of you in age, saying, you know what, we don't want some of that stuff. 
we want other stuff. Or we have, you know, this is my political view. And if you can win enough adherence, um, you know, you push for it. And so I think that's just the inherent tension. And, you know, it, at some schools, like one of my cousins went to uh, Hillsdale College in Michigan, which is a super conservative school. And even there, you know, I was thought, well, he's just, you know, acquiescent and accepts all this stuff. And, you know, I've heard him. He's like, yeah, the administration, you know, those people are just such jerks. <laughs> and he has his whole litany of what's what's wrong with their administration. Uh-huh. Yeah. So. Do you think that, I mean, even if there's always going to be some of that tension, do you think that the the digital age that we live in now may force us to reevaluate that mindset and figure out a way to be more conciliatory on both sides because you know we have you know like the 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 protests against gibsons for example that get picked up by the right-wing blogs and even some like mainstream media outlets and that has the potential if not the direct result of occasionally hurting our bottom line do we have to try to find a new way to navigate that in the this age of like prolific coverage of all things everywhere? I think everyone does. And yeah, that's a really good question because it's, it's, it's the dragon we're riding and no one knows how to control it or <laughs> make it go where you want to go. Mm-hmm. And you look at some of the survey research on the effect of uh, the internet and digital communications just on student life and at campus after campus, I think including ours, the number one issue among students is loneliness. Mm-hmm. You know, they come to college and feel isolated. And you come, you guys are digital natives. You know, for me, it was like, I didn't, I lived in dorms where there was a phone down the hall. You yeah. didn't even have a phone in your room. And your parents explicitly told you only call on Sunday when the long distance rates are low or if you're dying, which also, <laughs> which made no sense. It's like, if I'm dying, it's my first thing going to be like, you know, yeah. I want to talk to my folks. <laughs> Maybe I'll call 911. What yeah. the heck? So, um, yeah, and how you get around that. And then the interactions that happen in 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 the uh digital space can be just so so vicious at the same time it can be an incredible tool you know that's 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 the whole frustration of riding the dragon is just you know you can see what it could do and then sometimes you see what it does and say wow that that's really ugly yeah so every i i I don't have a good answer because i don't think anyone really knows mm-hmm. one theory is that um the there's more positivity in the world than negativity and eventually that just sort of overwhelms it but look at what happened with npr they cut off comment on their stories after doing a big study and finding that a really small group and i forget the actual number was shocking mm-hmm. it might have been like like 150 people were just dominating maybe it wasn't even that high, their comment section. Mm-hmm. And it was really vitriolic. It wasn't actual discussion. It was just people dug in and blasting away, and it turned personal very fast. Mm-hmm. So as, as an institution, you know, it's scary. And it's scary because it also has the potential for sort of, you know, um, immediate plebiscites 
or, hey, everyone go to this place where so-and-so who's a total jerk is, is you know, the kind of call-out culture shifted into the digital world, rallying people to do things that they're doing based on partial information or false information. I don't know. It just, yeah, I mean, for a, it's your generation that's going to have to sort this stuff out. <laughs> and I, I don't, I, you know, it's really tricky. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, that's a huge, huge difference from my time as a student. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting, the idea sort of that the student body in, in a lot of ways sort of shapes the stories that are going to happen and, and sort of wider perceptions of the school. Um, one thing I've heard is that sort of before the common, you know, like the common slogan for Oberlin is, um, do you think like one person can change the world? So do we. And I had heard that before that there was a period of time where it was Oberlin fearless. Um, <laughs> were you sort of like doing communications then or, or? No, I came, I came in that we did a, a what would you call it? A branding yeah. campaign 13 years ago with this consultant who was paid quite a bit of money and I wasn't here then, it's all anecdotal. I was here at the tail end when you know, my first business cards said, we are Oberlin fearless on the back. Oh, wow. And I said, you know, I don't want that. <laughs> and they're like, I'm sorry, that's the policy. That's the only business cards we do for people here. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll print my own. And they were like, no, you can't do that either. <laughs> and since I was a new guy trying to, you know, get along with a new president, it just... Apparently, the consultant presented to the general faculty meeting and said, fearless is just the idea that informs everything we're going to do and say about Oberlin. It's not going to be on T-shirts or mugs or anything like that. So time passes and suddenly here come the T-shirts, right. the mugs with fearless on them. And so older alums, it, it just it didn't really fly with anybody. It was really interesting. So older alums from when it was a dry town, it was a dry town when I was a student. Mm -hmm. The only place you could get beer, and it was just beer, was the Ratskeller in Wilder, or the place that's now the Fev, mm -hmm. which was a total dive bar where you weren't particularly welcome. And the beer was low alcohol beer, 3.2. Oh yeah. Nasty stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, so they're, they're, the older alums, came up with we are Oberlin beerless <laughs> um, and you know then other people you know were just it was it was sort of then the internet started coming along and so people were posting things like you know we are Oberlin fearless except for the following things which we fear <laughs> and so you get these huge lists and they included things you know and people are weighing in with things like puppies <laughs> you know um Goldfish, <laughs> French fries, it just, it got, it was just nuts. And I hated it. I hated it from the first time I saw it. I didn't, I wasn't part of the creation of it. I just thought, why? It just makes no sense to me. And they had a whole rationale built up around it. And if you have to spend all this time explaining to people why your tagline is actually really good, even though you both think it's terrible, it didn't work. That's the gist of it. So what was done was just, it was allowed to kind of just fade away. And then there was a bit of a void. And then Ben Jones came in and we were looking around and 
the previous campaign had been, you know, think one person could change, can change the world, so do we. Um, people had always liked that, so they just kind of reverted to it. Mm. I, uh, I'm, none of these things ever capture <laughs> any institution exactly, yeah. particularly a place that's so heterodox as Oberlin. It's just, mm. it's hard to, I mean, how do you boil your, both of your experiences down to just like yeah. a couple words or phrases? It's mm. just... I don't think it could be done, but no doubt we will try it again. So then for probably what the last question, if you had to boil your experience down to a couple words or phrases, <laughs> um, as a student, <laughs> as an administrator, what, what would you say? Or what would your reflection be on it? Ah, uh, yeah, it's, that's hard for me because my kindergarten picture, I'm wearing an Overland t-shirt that says 19 question mark question mark. It was where my dad went. Oh, it was great. where all my family members went. I only ever wanted to go here. Mm. So uh, to me, it was always just this magical place. And then when I got here as a first year, it comes crashing down on you that, yeah, it, it, it has that but it's also a really hard school. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of really interesting, really smart people. You have to work and work and work. I remember comparing the, the, the book lists, the reading lists to, uh, I went back to my high school on fall break and there was a guy who went to Brown and we were both taking an intro poetry class. The Oberlin reading list was twice as long as the Brown reading list. Wow. So I guess for my family, for me to sum it up, It'd be the people, the academic rigor, the, the learning, learning how to learn, uh, learning to see connections, and then the transformations that that, that has wrought in my family and in my life. And, you know, it, I wouldn't have had the success I had as a journalist if I hadn't have gone to Oberlin. Mm -hmm. um, it gave me you know, I, you know, I, the German language training I got here. I was just you know, better at German than people who went to other schools. So there, there really is this sort of, yeah, I don't know that I can boil it down to mm. a few words, but it's just this, this kind of intense interdisciplinary way of being in the world mm. and then having the conservatory and the art museum where everything... It's not like you go hear music every night. It's just like somehow music infuses all of life, even for people who don't, you know, you're not in a band, you aren't there. It's just, you learn more about music just being an Oberlin student, talking to people on your hall mm. than you would if you went to Ohio State. I yeah. firmly believe that, yeah. so. Yeah. All right, well with that, it looks like we've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us, Ferd. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes. Uh, you've been listening to The Weekly, a co-production of WOBC and the Oberlin Review. The show is created, written, and produced by Daniel Marcus and myself, Johan Kapp. As always, you can find our show on Apple Podcasts and Google Play by searching The Weekly Oberlin, and the show is also now available on Radio Public. You can also listen on the web at www.anchor.fm forward slash the dash weekly. Thanks for listening.